It's really great to see you all. Um, I know you've already been welcomed, so I don't want to just go over that ground. But if you are uh, a guest uh, or you're new to us, you're really welcome. There's a whole lot of guys from OM Life. Hope it's great to see you guys uh, with us as well. And uh, my name's Leon. I'm the senior pastor of the church, if you don't know who I am. And I want to, if you weren't here last week or I haven't seen you since last week, then I want to say Happy New Year to you. And I also say, I don't know when you stop saying that. Does anyone know when you stop saying Happy New Year? Well, this is probably about it now. You're probably not going to get it out of me again, all right, because I'm a bit bored with that. But Happy New Year to you anyway, and it's great to see you. Um, what we're going to do is that uh, this year, at the start of this year, I want to I speak over the next few weeks um, a, 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 into a whole subject which I, I believe is important and something that kind of, I believe God has given me, not just for the next few weeks, but actually is going to provide a foundation for us throughout the year. I hope this speaks to you individually. And I hope that it will also speak to us corporately as a church. You know, as we go into 2013, well, we're in it now, aren't we? We're well and truly in it. I guess we're all back to work or school or college or university or what have you. Um, You know, one of the things I want you to know is that you cannot control a lot of what happens over this next 12 months. You are going to be able to do very little to control what happens with the economy this year. We leave that in the hands of the people who know what they're doing, don't we? joke. Okay, uh, so you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to have much control over the, over the weather or over the environment. You're not going to have much control over other people's decisions or choices. You're not going to have very much control over circumstances or things that come at you in life. But one thing that you and I have some control over is our choices. And that's what I believe that God has said to give me this kind of phrase, by choice. That actually God wants us to become uh, people who, who use the choice that God has given us to embrace what God wants out of our lives. And I believe that what God is specifically saying to us, to me individually, to you individually, to us as a community, is that this is the year when God wants us to choose to become bigger people by choice. Now, it's, it's very rare at the start of a new year that, that, you, that people say, I want to be bigger this year by choice. Most people say, I want to be smaller this year. And that's about diet. And you have your diet, knock yourself out. That's fine. But I believe, I'm not talking about our weight. I'm talking about being bigger people who choose to be bigger by choice, who actually like the little goldfish. Uh, they want to jump out of a little space into a bigger space. And you know, that something is amazing that when you become a bigger person, Something will happen in you and in your environment and possibly even in your circumstances because God is doing something on the inside of you. There's some amazing verses that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians um, uh, chapter 6, verse 11 to 13. And if I read it from the message translation, it just opens up the imagery, it opens up your imagination as to what Paul was getting at. And he writes this, he says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. Isn't that a great few sentences from the Bible there? He said, listen, you haven't got a small life, but you're living it in a small way. And then he's calling them to, to jump out of their small little goldfish bowl into a bigger space and saying, live openly and live expansively. How many of you want to live a bigger life? <laughs> you know, I, 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 can I just say right now, I, I don't believe this is necessarily means, oh, right, I, I'm going to go and climb mountains and dive in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a bigger life in God's sight that makes an impact. You see, bigger people live differently. Bigger people live differently. Bigger people respond to life differently than smaller people. Bigger people respond to people differently than smaller people. Bigger people influence different pe- differently. Bigger people become bigger by choice. How many of you have already been to see the film Les Miserables? What an awesome film. I have to say, I know you know that I, I love films. It was, went last night. Have you ever seen the stage show? Anyone seen the stage show? Read the book, got the t-shirt. We did have somebody at the nine o'clock, sadly enough. Um, I have to tell you, I want to tell you, uh, go. Please go and see it. If you don't like musicals, you'll get into it after a little bit of a while. You'll come out of it uh, at the end of it thinking, I'm never going to speak again. I'm only going to sing. Whatever I want to say, I want to sing. I want a cup of tea with two sugars. And you'll, you'll do it, okay, like that. Okay, that, there you go. Uh, but if you can get into the whole thing of that, I believe, I believe that outside of the Bible, it's one of the best stories ever written. 
written in 1862 by Victor Hugo, a committed Christian. It's got God all over it. You cannot go to that film or to watch that on the stage as a Christian anyway and not come out being totally impacted by God. It is God all over. It's about grace. It's about redemption. It's about forgiveness. But ultimately what it's about, uh, well not ultimately, but part of the thing of what it's about is it's about one man who's going down one direction in his life and because he receives incredible grace, he makes a decision by choice to live a bigger life. And he's going down that road, but because he receives grace from a priest, from God, via a priest, he decides to go that road. That road's much easier in one level. This road is incredibly difficult. But because he chooses to go a bigger way, because he chooses to give his life, to call into a bigger life, other people's lives are impacted by it. If you've not seen it, it's amazing. I've never been to the cinema. I can't remember the last time I went to the cinema when at the end of the film, as the last kind of song hit that last final note, everyone applauded. And as the lights came up, you could see men going, oh, I've got something in my eye. Do you know what I mean? You know, just so emotional. Not me, of course. I'm far too manly for that. But, but just so emotional, so tugging at your heart. And, you, and I just thought, I just wanted, I wanted to get up and preach. I wanted to get up and I wanted, I wanted to burst into song. I wanted to shout in tongues really loudly. I didn't do any of those things, all right? I just wiped my eyes and walked out. But it was just an amazing film. And it, to me, I just thought, wow, the call to live a bigger life. If we've received grace, if you've received grace, there is a call on your life to live a bigger life. We don't want to just hold on to it in ourselves and live in our small little goldfish bowl, but we want to live openly and expansively. Amen. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at this character study, this case study, this guy called Moses. Many of you will know Moses or who he was if you've ever went to Sunday school. But I know that many people haven't been to Sunday school. You may know of Moses through the film, the cartoon film, The Prince of Egypt. Or if you're a little older, in your mind, Moses is Charlton Heston. You know what I'm saying? So the, yeah, yeah so some of you are nodding there. Um, so you'll have an image in your mind about Moses. And some of you, even if you're not brought up in church or you've not been to Sunday school, you'll know some things about the Moses story. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Moses had a bit of a troubled childhood. You could say as a child he was a bit of a basket case. I'll wait, I'll wait. Um, But he actually grew up in the Egyptian court. He was a Hebrew, but because the Pharaoh at the time was trying to kill all the Hebrew slaves, uh, he was put in a basket in in the Nile and then taken into the court of of the Egyptians and was brought up like an Egyptian. For 40 years, I nearly did that walk like an Egyptian, but that's showing my age, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he was brought up like an Egyptian, which meant he was educated, he was trained, he was skilled in that privileged environment. And that's really, really important. But as he was growing up, he always knew that he wasn't an Egyptian, that he was a Hebrew. And so he'd see all the Hebrew slaves that were being oppressed, because actually, this, was, uh, this is trafficking and exploitation that was going on here, okay, uh, in this thing. The Egyptians were exploiting the people, the Hebrew people. So Moses was, was in this kind of um, funny situation that he was an Egyptian and he was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew and he was an Egyptian. He didn't really kind of know who he was. He was a little bit of both, but ultimately he knew he was a Hebrew. And then it says in, in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, Stephen, one of the early Christians, recounts the story of Moses. And I'm going to read it from there. If you've got a Bible, it's Acts 7, verse 23. And Stephen says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. <laughs> but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Wow, he's rumbled, isn't he? So he's done something that other people know about. Now now he's said something to these people and he's rejected. And it says, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and he had two sons. That word foreigner in the original language literally means, I don't belong here. So here's a man who's unsure of his identity, who flees into, runs off into the desert and for 40 years doesn't know who he is or what he's doing or what he's about. And I've read that story hundreds of times in my life. And then this time when I read it, I saw something slightly differently. Because I read at the start, when Moses was 40 years old. It's interesting what some men do when they're around about 40. Have you noticed that? Not this man, of course. But some men that I've noticed do strange things. Like 
buy a motorbike and try and be younger and get all things pierced and tattooed and whatever. And men do some strange things when they're 40. In fact, here's some, some quotes about 40. If you're around about that age, okay, and roundabout, because when you get a certain age, you're always roundabout, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? You're never quite there. 40 isn't old if you're a tree, okay? Uh, life begins at 40, uh, but so do fallen arches, rheumatism, faulty eyesight, and the tendency to tell the same story to the same person three or four times. Turning 40 is having a choice between two temptations and choosing the one, yes, you're absolutely right, choosing the one that will get you home the earliest. And, and basically, turning 40 can be a very traumatic time for some men. But what Moses did when he turned 40 was really interesting. Because what Moses did was he did something he regretted, and then he said something that he regretted. And so much so that for the next 40 years, he spends his life with his family, the sheep, the sand in the desert. That's it. A small life for 40 years. He'd been living in, a, in Egyptian court. And then for the next 40, lives, 40 years, he spends it living in the desert. He does and says something that he regrets. Anyone ever done or said something that they regretted? In fact, last week, last Sunday, I did this. Me and Alison, my wife, were, were at uh, um, Starbucks having a coffee together. And uh, we just had an hour or so free. And we were reading. Okay, because we really know how to be exciting and live life. So she was reading The Guardian, um, and, and I was reading a book. And um, she, was, she put her reading glasses on, and so she was reading. And I'm fighting that. I have got reading glasses, and I do use it. But in public, I'm fighting it, because I'm around about 40-ish. And, so, and, and I'm reading this book, and I'm going to put my thought. Oh. And before I knew what I said, these words actually came out of my mouth. So there's my wife, beautiful wife, okay, sat there with her reading glasses. And before I could stop myself, I said this. It's no good. I'm going to have to look like an older person too. And took my glasses out. And I realized as I said it, what I'd said. But then there was that awful moment. Do you know what I mean? There's that where everyone stops and freezes in the whole, like, you can imagine the whole of Starbucks stopped. And she just peered over her glasses and I thought, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. And then I tried to get myself out of it and it got even worse. Men, you know what I'm talking about. No, 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 darling, I didn't mean that. And it, it was just, I had to say sorry and just. Hit me now. Do you know what I mean? I was just, it was a, but you say something you regret. You do something you regret. But for Moses, the impact of what he did and what he said was a life in the desert for 40 years. And then one day, an ordinary day, he was doing ordinary things that he did every day for 40 years. His life, the trajectory of his life, and the trajectory of the nation and of the world is changed through one encounter. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then it goes on to say, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. At the burning bush, God calls Moses out of his goldfish bowl into a bigger life. And what's fascinating to me about this is that this was an ordinary day. And he's doing ordinary things. And actually, a bush on fire was an ordinary thing for Moses. That happened all the time in the desert. But it isn't an ordinary thing for that bush to keep on fire and not to burn out. That's not ordinary. And so Moses makes a choice. Firstly, he makes a choice to stop. So he could have just walked on. But he made a choice to stop. And he made a choice to turn aside. And he made a choice to walk towards the burning bush. And then when God begins to speak to him, he's got a whole load of other choices to make. And so I want to say to you this morning, you chose to come here this morning. Unless you were 
dragged along by someone, which may be true for younger ones here this morning. I don't know. But you made a choice. Let's just say you made a choice to come here. You now have another choice, whether you're going to stop and let God get your attention. Because God's speaking to you this morning. The question is, are you hearing? Are you listening? And so what God does is he calls to him out of the bush and he invites him into a bigger life. There are three specific things that I want to talk about this morning. The first thing is that God firstly wants to give him a bigger perspective of who he is. He wants Moses to choose to gain a bigger perspective of who God is. Now the burning bush, I want you to imagine this is the bush, it's obviously a sign. That the burning bush, it was interesting that it, it burns and it doesn't burn out. That's almost like God saying, this is who I am. I'm inexhaustible. I'm inextinguishable. You know, I'm my own energy. I'm my own source. I never burn out. I never fade out. I never tire out. This is who I am. And that gets uh, Moses' attention. But then if you know the story, Moses then blurts out all kinds of excuses why he can't jump out of his goldfish bowl and do this bigger thing of going and leading the people out of Egypt. And he comes up with all these excuses culminating in this one. Well, if I go back and speak to the people and say that I'm going to lead you out, what about if they said, well, who sent you? See, 40 years before, that's what happened, wasn't it? Where he spoke to the Israelites and, and, and he said, look, look, what are you doing? You're fighting with each other. And they said, who appointed you? Who, who do you think you are, basically? And, and he hasn't forgotten that, Moses, 40 years later. What about if I go back and they say, who do you think I am? Who has sent you? And then God says this thing, which appears to be a riddle. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Don't you love it when God's so clear? Do you know what I mean? Think, what does that mean? I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, to understand that, we need to understand a little bit of Hebrew, and I only understand a little bit, okay? Basically, that name, I am, is the new name of God, which has been revealed to people. Before, God was primarily known as El Shaddai, which was a more formal way of addressing God. But this is a different kind of name. It's not just a name. It's not just a noun. It's also a verb. It literally means to be. It's like, I am always. So God is saying, listen, this is who sent you. I am always. The God who, is, who doesn't need any other source. The God who is inextinguishable. The God who never fades out. The God who never tires out. The God who is always who he says he is. That's who sent you. So God is always powerful. I am always light. I am always mercy. I am always love. I am always strength. This is who I am. You need to get a bigger sense of who God is. And I want to say to you, at the start of this year, if we are going to be people, and if we as a church are going to be a church that live a bigger life, we have to have a bigger perspective of who our God is. Because the size of your God will determine how you live your life. And when we have an image of God that he is small, that he is tiny, that he is not able, that's how we're going to live our lives. But when we see God as the all-conquering, self-existent one, the one who was un- is uncreated, who will always be there, who is always at the peak of his power, we're going to live differently. But when we shrink God to be small, we're going to shrink our own lives to live small lives. We'll never get out of the boat if that's the size of our God. We'll never share our faith with others if that's the size of our God. We'll never trust God with our finances or with our families or with our futures if that is the size of our God. And God's saying to Moses, I'm going to call you to a bigger life, but first you need to know that you serve a bigger God. I am has sent me. Wow. Then fast forward it. So, so he goes, okay, I'll do it a bit later on. And he goes back to Egypt and then he confronts Pharaoh. And then there's that whole list of the ten plagues uh, that happened in Egypt. Now, we're not going to get into why would God allow plagues on people and the whole moral ethical dilemma. That's a whole different talk. But we just think about the fact that God sent these ten different plagues. Now, let's do a little bit of Bible knowledge for your old Sunday school days or if you did watch the Charlton Heston film. Who can tell me any of the ten plagues? Just shout them out. Locusts, frogs, hail, gnats, blood. Yep, death of the firstborn. Darkness. Boils, that's the best one, isn't it? That's that's the one you pray over certain people, isn't it? Boils, that's the one. Anything else? We got them all? Hail, we got that, I think. Gnats, we got flies. Did we get flies? I think we got all of them. Here's the interesting thing. If you were to list all of those ten plagues, the interesting thing is, when you look at Egyptian gods, there's loads of Egyptian gods, ten of the most popular Egyptian gods were all connected to those ten things. It's amazing when you look at that. 
And it's a little bit like God saying, listen, you can have all your gods, do all your different stuff, but I want you to know that actually all your gods all put together are not as powerful as me. Because God is God. And, and, and Moses sees that and he gets a bigger perspective of God, but he has to choose to step into that. He has to choose to step into that. So what we're going to do, I want to just say, you know, when, you, when, when kids are little, sometimes you'll say to a kid, how big are you? And uh, they'll go, I'm so big. And they'll, they'll want to kind of go and you want to encourage them. Yeah, you're so big because you want them to know that they're growing. That doesn't work, by the way, when your wife says, does this look big on me? doesn't work. Don't do that. But we want to encourage our kids to, to say, yes, they're growing and they're so big. Here's my question. How big is your God? How big is your God? Because the size of your God will affect how you live your life. It really will. And um, John Ortberg, who wrote this amazing book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. He talks in in, in the book about that, that moment when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter is in the boat. And he says, come to him. And Peter's unsure. And then he says, take courage, it is I. That's in the English. But it's written in Greek, and in the original language it was written in, it, it, it wasn't actually, take courage, it is I. It was literally the, the word that, is in, that we've been talking about in the Hebrew. Literally what Jesus said is, take courage, I am who I am. <laughs> so he refers back to this whole revelation of God as being, I am who I am. It's not just Jesus the man that's calling you, it's God. It's I am. It's like, you know, if you ever need any confidence to get out of the boat, you need to know that it's God, your God. I am who I am. Who is calling you out? And the size of our God will determine how we live our life. In the book, in this book, at the end, he talks about uh, when he was at university, that, uh, he found himself in a, in a bar, uh, and he was at theological co- uh, college, all right? So these Bible college students found themselves in a bar, and all of a sudden, a barroom brawl developed and he said, like, he's a Bible college student. He really wasn't kitted out for barroom brawls. And this is how he uh, tells the story. He says, then I looked behind me. There I saw one of the biggest guys I had ever seen. He was apparently employed as a bouncer at the barroom. And suddenly I gained a great deal of respect for that profession. I would guess the man stood about six foot seven and weighed 250 pounds or so with perhaps 2% body fat. If Hercules had married Xena, the warrior princess, this would have been their child. We called him Mongo, but not to his face. Mongo did not say a word. He just stood there with muscles bulging. He looked as if he hoped these guys who were brawling would take him on. It it was an area of massive, breathtaking competence for him. Breaking up fights was his spiritual gift. In that moment, my attitude was transformed. I wanted to say to these guys, you better not let us catch you hanging around here again. We were different people because we had a great big Mongo. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was ready to serve someone who needed help. Why? Because Mongo had passed by. <laughs> I had experienced a mongophony. I was, I was convinced that I was not alone. The middle of a barroom brawl was a perfectly safe place for me to be. If I were convinced that Mongo were with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'd have a fundamentally different approach to life. Of course he's not. I cannot go around with Mongo beside me all the time and it's probably a good thing. Actually, I don't need him. And then he says this, I have one who is greater than Mongo with me at all times. Courage, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. And I believe that. It is part of my creed. I've committed my life to teaching others about it. Yet all too often my life does not reflect it. All too often I shrink back when I should confront. I worry when I could pray. I cling when I could generously share. I stay in the boat when I could walk on the water. So how do I change my perspective? How can I come to believe in the sufficiency of Christ for my life the way I now believe in gratitude? How can I live in a way that reflects the fact that I follow a God who is so huge? There is a word for the process by which human beings come to perceive and declare the vastness, worthiness and strength of God. And it's called worship. And part of worship, part of worship is singing. And that's what we're going to do now for a few moments. We're going to sing about God's great power, vastness and majesty. And as the band come back, I want to encourage you not just to sing the song, but to put yourself in the position of Moses, if you like. And you might be facing something in your life at the start of this year 
where you're feeling small, where you're feeling challenged, where you want to stay in the goldfish bowl because it's safe and secure. But God is calling you out of that goldfish bowl into a bigger space. And what you need more than anything else is a bigger perspective of who God is. And you'll get that by choice as you choose to focus on the vastness of God. So let's stand and let's sing. Father, I pray that as we sing these amazing words together, as we bring you worship through song, as we declare your greatness, God, I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes to see how awesome, majestic, glorious, beautiful you are. God, how when we look at our problems and we look at our circumstances, we will look at them in reality, but we'll look at them also in the reality of the God that we serve. And our God is able. Our God is able. Our God is glorious. And we worship you today in spirit and in truth. Look inside the ministry. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, God is stronger. And at the start of this year, I want you to know God is able. God is able. And if you, you this year, you're facing financial challenges. I want you to know that God is stronger and God is able. Some of you, as you enter this year, you're facing health challenges. Well, those you love are facing health changes. God is stronger and God is able. Some of you are facing relational or marriage challenges. God is stronger and God is able. Some of you are locked in a situation and you're longing to get out into a bigger life. And I want you to know God is stronger and God is able. But we have to choose. We have to choose to say, we believe you, God. We put our trust in you. We put our faith in you because you are a huge God. You are a huge God. And you never leave us and you never forsake us. So right now, just before we move on, if you, are that, if you know that God is calling something bigger out of you and there's that fear, and we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but there's that fear and there's that sense of, can I really trust God? I want you to think about that issue in your life. Think about that challenge that's restricting you, that's keeping that smallness and give it to God. Just begin to praise your fingers off and begin to hand it over to God and say, Lord, this is yours. I'm not stronger, but you are. I'm not able, but you are. And God, I just give you this. I trust this with you. We discover that we have with us the God with the biggest hands in the universe, the safest hands in the universe, and we can live big, risky lives full of faith and adventure because we serve and trust and we put our trust in the hands of the biggest hands in the universe the hands of our God and so God we give you our future give you our job put our mortgage in your hands we put our security in your hands God we put our family our kids in your hands and we say Lord we aren't able but you are we aren't strong enough but you are and we choose Lord God We choose to worship a God who is huge. Forgive us, Lord, when we shrink you down to be so small when you are so big. Cause us like Moses to choose to step in to that big life because you are such a big and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? You know... um, this call to, to a bigger life. Thanks, Dan. And, and, and Mo, God starts it by saying, Moses, I'm going to call you into some pretty big stuff. And, and if I'm going to call you into some pretty big stuff, you need to know that you're serving a pretty big God. That's, that's what all this is about, I think, at the burning bush. Uh, but then the second thing is that God calls Moses into a bigger realization of purpose for his one and only life. And he says, actually, the purpose that I've got for you, Moses, is that you will go and lead my people out of slavery in Egypt across the wilderness and into the promised land. So it's no big job, is it? It's like two million of them, apparently. And uh, they're, they're, they're there because Pharaoh has built an empire on their backs. So actually, this is all about money. You didn't know that, did you? But this was all about money and power, really. That's why you've got all these Hebrews. So this whole trafficking, exploitation thing going on, you thought that was a modern phenomenon. It really isn't. It was all going on. And, and, and God says to Moses, your job... Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, okay, is to go back and confront the most powerful man in the world, ask him to release all these people that are sustaining the power and the wealth of his empire, and then lead them across the wilderness into the promised land. So it's no big deal, basically. 
And so he's calling this bigger realization of purpose out of him. Now, what would the last 40 years in the desert been characterized for Moses? How would you characterize those 40 years? Perhaps they could be failure and disappointment. Regrets, he's had a few. I mean, what he said and what he did 40 years before meant he, he fled to the desert. And so for 40 years living, and, and I can imagine him getting up some mornings early on in that 40 years saying, God, I tried to do this for you. Anyone ever been there? I tried to do this for you and yet they rejected me and yet it went wrong. And so he kind of pushed God aside, I think, and his failure and disappointment. Perhaps his 40 years then became characterized by monotony and predictability. Every day it's the same. Just get up out of bed, out the tent, sheep, desert, you know, blah, 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 family. Every day, just predictability and monotony. Perhaps even self-absorption, because for 40 years it's been him, his family, the sheep and the sand. That's been the extent of his life. And then God appears to him at the burning bush and calls him into a bigger realization of purpose. You're going to come out of this goldfish bowl. You're going to go into this big space. You are going to lead my people into the promised land. Now, does that mean that if we are to apply this to our lives, that God is going to call us out of our jobs into something completely different? Maybe he will, probably he won't. Because this is where we get it wrong when we look at the Bible. We take some things way too literally in the Bible and some things not literally enough. And when we're looking at a story like Moses, we've got to get behind the literal things and think, what is God really saying in terms of principle? And this is where I want to mess with your theology a little bit, if that's okay. Is that all right? As God is messing with mine at the moment. So how many have ever heard a preacher say something like this? God doesn't, God's not interested in your abilities. It's your availability he wants. How many have ever heard that? You have, because I've said it. So obviously most of you don't ever listen when I speak. So that's really encouraging. Thank you for that. I've said that, and to a degree, I think that's true, but I'm stepping back and thinking, actually, I don't think that's the whole truth. You see, the reason that God called Moses to a bigger realization of purpose was no accident. He didn't just say to Mo- I mean, Moses comes up all with the excuses, I can't speak, I can't do this. We'll look at that next week, because that's all a load of garbage, you know that, don't you? Because he was a very eloquent speaker. So but we'll look at that next week. That's a whole different theme, really. But the reason that God said to Moses, I want you, was not just by accident. Because you see, Moses, God needed somebody who would lead people across the wilderness, into the promised land, who was educated, who was trained, who was skilled, who had a certain set of abilities. And Moses was the man. Moses developed them, being brought up in the Egyptian court. They were refined in his character and dealt, issues were dealt with in his character during the desert. God saw, here's Moses with the ability I want. The problem is the availability. So this is what I think God is saying to me about this and to you. Most of the times, God will not call you to step out of your current space, your current employment, your current scenario into something different. What God will want is for you to realize that where you are, there's a greater and a bigger sense of purpose for your life. Let me ask you a question. If any of you needed open heart surgery, do you want someone who is just available? Do you know what I mean? Like you need open heart surgery. Is anyone free? All right. Have you, do you want to have a go? Who, who would do that? It's ridiculous. You don't want someone who's available. You want someone who knows one end of the scalpel from the other. And a few other things as well, I would hesitate to ask. Now, let me push it even further. Jesus left the church in the hands of the disciples. Uneducated, ordinary people who weren't skilled, who were fishermen, who weren't skilled in so much of what it means to be leadership. And Jesus left the the church in the hands of those. And God, through his spirit and power, did great things in them. And God takes the foolishness of the world to confound the wise. I believe all of that. But, but he didn't just leave the church in the hands of the disciples, did he? Because he came back for Paul. He appeared to this man called Saul on the road to Damascus. And he appeared to him in a vision and he said, Saul, and he needed him. And he needed him because this man was a leader. This man was educated. This man was experienced. This man had abilities that God needed. I don't know whether the church would have ever broken out of Jerusalem or Judea if it hadn't have been for Paul. So I want you to know, God wants your availability. And you might think that you're not, most of us think that we're not equipped And God can equip us. But I want you also to know that God wants your abilities as well. And so for some of you this morning, you're a teacher. 
and you teach little kids or bigger kids or adults and you're there and you have a set of experiences, you have a set of skills, you have a set of attributes. If you're a smaller person, your job is just there for you to pick up the paycheck and to moan about. But if you're a bigger person, you're there because God wants you there and you're there for purpose. And it's your mission field. And you are much better there than I am because you, I might be available, but I'm not able, but you are. And God can take your abilities and make you what he wants you to be. If you work in finance, okay, you're not just there in that finance job for the rest of us to moan about you. You're there for a reason. You've got some experiences. You've got some abilities. You've got some skills. God is not necessarily wanting to pull you out. What he's wanting you to do is to realize that you're there for a reason and a purpose. And that's your mission field. You could be in manufacturing. You could be in engineering. You could be in the home. You could be in any kind of scenario. And I want you to know, God has placed you there for a reason and for a purpose. And it isn't just about pulling you out into another set of circumstances. It's filling you with his power and you knowing that you're there to reflect God and to give God glory. Does that make sense? And it's not just your availability. It's your ability that God is after as well. Now, that doesn't mean to say, say, well, I'm not, I'm not, I can't do this, I can't do that. You know, God will use that. God does do that. But I think many of us rule ourselves out of being called into the bigger life because we just don't get the fact that God actually put us, put us where he wants us. He just wants us to get it. I want to give some honor to some people this morning. I'm not going to mention them by name. But over the Christmas period, I have been so blown away by just some of the amazing people that we have in this church. I honestly, I know I'm the, the mouthy, gobby one that gets to do this with the microphone all the time, but I look at some of the people in this church and I'm just so, like, so in awe of them. And I just think, oh, I just wish I was like them. You know, there's a fella in this church who's in education, in, in higher education, and uh, he invited around 14 people who actually came to the search, the Christmas event. That's amazing. And, and he, he sent me an email with just some of the comments that some of these 14 people have made. And I wept when I read them. I just thought, wow, some of these people were, you, were atheists, really, or agnostics, or pretty hostile to it, but they came along, and, and some of them said it was so different to what I thought. I'm really going to think about it, and wow, is that what church is? Just amazing comments. None of them fell down and became Christians, but just amazing comments. And I love the way that this fellow in our church takes his faith and integrates it in his world and says, I'm not just a teacher to pick up a paycheck. That's not why I'm a teacher. I'm there to teach kids, to give them a good education, but I'm also there because that's a mission field. I'm going to bring honour and glory to God. I had an email this week from a fellow in the church who, who last week when I spoke about these three words, bigger, bolder, braver, really went away and prayed about them and felt God speak to him about his business and the way he was running his business and that those words spoke specifically into his business. I love that. And I think there's someone that realises that their whole life is there for the honour and the glory of God. Isn't it? That's what a bigger sense of purpose means, folks. It isn't about getting out of your job and working for the church or going in a mission organization. That's not what it's about. That's a very few, very small percentage of people. And please help us. If everybody did that, we'd be in a right mess. Because that's not primarily how God wants to transform this world. What God wants to do is he wants everybody, wherever they are, to understand that they're there for a reason and to call them into a bigger sense of purpose. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you at the start of this year. Do you, will you choose to have a bigger realization of purpose and say, God, I am where I am for the season that I'm here and I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to bring you honor and I'm going to bring you glory. I just finished reading a book by a guy called Stephen Furtick. He makes this phrase, makes this phrase in this book. It's really direct. And he says this, if the size of your vision for your life isn't intimidating to you, there's a good chance it's insulting to God. That's fairly direct, isn't it? If the vision... The vision you have for your life isn't intimidating to you. It's a good chance it's insulting to God. Now, I feel intimidated by the vision that God has given us as a church, the third place and all of the rest of it. And I think that's an honoring vision and it's intimidating, but I don't want it to be insulting to God. But I want you to know the vision God wants for your life also needs to be intimidating to you as well. Since God, right where I am, I'm going to be someone that makes a difference, that leaves a mark. Because I'm called to a bigger realization of purpose. Final thing. God calls Moses not just to a bigger sense of purpose, but to a bigger heart for people. Ultimately, what it's about is Moses, you spend 40 years where it's just been about you and your family. Now you're going to spend a whole load of time when it's about you and people. 
And he said, you're going to lead these people. Now, fast forward. How easy was it to lead those people for Moses? They were a great people to lead, weren't they? No, I mean, they never moaned. They never grumbled. They weren't, they weren't a day's bother. Do you know what I mean? No, that actually wasn't the truth. You see, what happened was he led these people out. He took on Pharaoh. The plagues came. Pharaoh let them go. They marched, all right, he marched about two, two million people out. They get to the Red Sea. Bit of a problem. Pharaoh changes his mind, comes chasing after them. They all turn on their leader. Normal behavior, by the way. They all turn on their leader and they say, didn't, is this, did you just want to bring us here to die? There's gratitude for you. And then Moses connects into God and God does a miracle and they come through and they celebrate and they say, oh Moses, you're great again now. Normal behavior. You're absolutely fantastic. But then a bit later, they get no food. They got no food. And Moses, you're a terrible leader. Normal behavior. Because they've got no food. But Moses connects with God again and God provides manna for them. And Moses, all of a sudden, is a fantastic leader. But then they get a little bit bored of the manna because the, the name, the word manna literally means, what is it? It's like, it's a nondescript thing. It's like Rivita crackers or something. Imagine that. And that's all they ate for ages and ages and ages. Like a Rivita cracker is really nice occasionally. But breakfast, lunch and dinner for weeks, what is it? And they turn on Moses again. So this is the cycle of, oh, Moses, you're amazing. Moses, you're awful. Grumbling, moaning. Then it got worse. Because then when Moses is up a mountain, getting, receiving the law from God as the foundation for how this nation is going to live, what they're doing is they're making a golden calf and bowing down and worshipping it. And I look at that as a leader. I understand a little tiny bit of what it is to lead. Many of you lead people in your work and in different situations. You know how easy and pain-free it is to lead people, don't you? You know that. I'm being facetious, by the way. And you know how you feel about that sometimes. And I, I, I can imagine Moses, just, just the exasperation. And then, as he, and then as he's up the mountain, it says in Exodus 32, and if you ever want to know, find a text to prove how big a heart for people can be, it's this one. See, at the burning bush, Moses made a choice. He said, okay, God, you're calling me. You're calling me to walk down this road. Down that road, it's just me and my family. Leave us alone. Don't bother us. Comfortable. This road, I've got to lead two million people. I'm going to choose. And he chooses to walk down this road. And in the process of walking down, God, by his spirit, transforms his heart until a point where he has a massive heart for people. And even this group of people, and so this is what it says in Exodus 32. The Lord then said to Moses, up the mountain he is, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. That's interesting, isn't it? Because before, God said they were his people. Now all of a sudden, they're Moses's. You notice that? Interesting. Have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Wow. So God's saying, these people have turned against me and against you. Such wicked people. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're a stiff-necked people. It's like they're just never going to change. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Listen to this. Then I'll make you into a great nation. (laughs) Ha, ha. There's an ethical dilemma there, isn't there, as a leader. So God's saying, you know this group of people that you've been leading that have given you a nightmare time over all these years. I'm going to come in, I'm going to wipe them out, and then I'm going to make you into a great nation. Tempted? <laughs> tempted? Would you be tempted? Of course you would. Of course you'd be tempted. Because you say, God, I think you're right. Like, they're awful. They're just terrible. And you're going to make me into a what? A great nation. Interesting offer. And then this is what it says. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Let me just remind you, God, they're yours. Whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say? It was with evil intent that he brought them out. So like Moses' heart here is for the honor and the glory of God. And for people. Why would they say that? To kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Then a little bit later it says this. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is interesting. It's one of the rare times in the Bible when it appears that God changed his mind. The, word, the Lord relented. Can you imagine this? It's incredible to me. 
God is saying, I'm going to wipe out these annoying, grumbling, frustrating people who've given you such a hard time. I'm going to wipe them out and make you into a great nation. And Moses says, no, you ain't. No, you ain't. Because my heart for these people and my heart for your honor and glory is so big that I'm going to stand in the way of you, God. I'm going to say, God, you're not touching these people. And the Bible says that God changed his mind and didn't wipe them out. Isn't that amazing? Are you not amazed by that? I'm like, wow, what a heart for people. What a heart for people. You know, as we draw it to to a a close, how big is your heart for people? (laughs) How big are you willing for your heart to be for people? And, And can I say, I'm totally aware, I totally get that when you're at this point and God says bigger heart for people, you say, okay, or not. Because I know that down that way is easier, it's more comfortable, it's more controllable, it's less pain, less aggro, less difficult, Less disappointment, but it's the smaller life. One of the things I loved about Le Mis, the film, was when Valjean, the, the, the hero and the central character in the story, gets this amazing grace on his life. Immediately he kind of changes his life around and he sees someone who's in a difficult situation. And he doesn't have to get involved, but he does get involved and it changes the whole of his life and his future. Because his heart for people has become bigger. He realizes that, that there's a bigger God. <laughs> you know, this preaches, doesn't it? He realizes there's a bigger God. He realizes there's a bigger purpose for his own life. And he realizes that ultimately his purpose is about people. You want the safe life and the easy life and the selfish life? Go for it. But God is calling us to a bigger life with a bigger heart for people. And I want to say at the start of this year, I believe for us as a church, that God is wanting us to have a bigger heart for people. And there's two aspects of this that I want to just briefly touch on. One is to have a bigger heart for one another. How many of you know Christians are really easy people to get along with all of the time? Oh. If you've been a Christian longer than 20 minutes, something like that, you'll realize that actually becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily make you a nice or a really easy to get along with person. We're just people. We're all on a journey. And what happens is that when we become Christian and we get engaged with small group or with church community, we realize that people aren't all like us and people can be crazy and hurtful and disappointing and all that. And we realize all of that and it's really easy to go small and to shut them all out or to say, God, by choice, give me a bigger heart for people. They're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. It's okay. We're on a journey. Give us a bigger heart for one another. What I believe that means for us as a church is this. To have a bigger heart for one of the means. Means that we don't always look out for people who fit in our circle. Sometimes we look out for those who don't. That when we come to a gathered opportunity or where there's people around, we don't leave it to those who necessarily have things hanging around their necks to be welcoming. We're going to be welcoming. We're going to reach out. We're going to talk to people because actually we want a bigger heart for people. What it also means is that when people hurt us and disappoint us and let us down, we are quicker to forgive and move on. Bigger people forgive. Do you know that? Smaller people don't. What it also means is that we want to embrace difference and say difference is what makes the church really distinct. It's so amazing. I think it's so amazing that in a church we can stand and worship and serve and love alongside one another and we would never be in the same room if it wasn't for God. Would we? I wouldn't with you lot. It's just like, I'm joking, I'm joking. But it's the only thing that pulls us together is God. And you can have someone who's a successful businessman standing next to someone else who's not and someone who's in employment and someone who's not and someone who's married and someone who's not and someone who's old and someone who's not and someone who's white and someone who's not. And it's amazing to me that it's so different and it's big because God wants to give us a bigger heart for one another. And secondly, And I will finish with this, I promise. God wants to give us a bigger heart for those who don't yet know God. You know, tomorrow night we've got Alpha starting. We've got loads of people signed up. If you've got friends, family, relatives, cats, dogs who don't yet know Jesus and you want to bring them along, please, that was a joke. You know, go and see Simon in, in uh, in the welcome area afterwards. Bring some people along, you know. Pray tomorrow night as Alpha starts. But it isn't just running a course it's going to give us a bigger heart for people. It's fundamentally allowing God to challenge who we are at the very core of our being. I'm challenged right now by um, a, f- a question that I think God's asking of me. <laughs> and I don't quite know where this is all going to go. 
uh, but I want to just put it out there right at the start of the year for you to think and pray about. And the question God asked me this over Christmas, after we did the Christmas event, and I know that we, we do Christmas events, and I know it's a Christmas event, I understand that, but the question God asked me was this, he said this, do you know what, this church, this church is great at building events that unchurched people want to come to. Why can't we build a church that unchurched people want to come to? And in many senses we are, but God's got me in that place where he's saying, Leon, what would it look like, not just if you built an event that unchurched people want to come to, but you built a church that unchurched people wanted to come to? How different would it need to be, and what would you and everybody else need to be willing to do in order for that to happen? How much, how big a heart do we want for the unchurched people? You know, the reason that people often leave this church is consumerism. Ah, I'm going to rant on you if I'm not careful. And the reason they leave is that it doesn't quite meet their need. And we think everybody else out there is not a Christian. Oh, so consumeristic. Actually, we don't understand that. We're all consumers. And the reason people leave church is usually because it isn't meeting their need. That's consumerism. So the worship, the music isn't long enough. The teaching isn't deep enough. The, the gifts of the Spirit aren't used frequently enough. Um, the, it's just not enough. And so we go to somewhere else. That's absolutely fine. But here's the danger. Here's the problem. If we build a church on those voices, the voice that we're not hearing is the voice of the person who's not here. And can I say that they're actually not asking any of those questions. They don't care how much you sing. They get a little freaked out by the gifts of the Spirit anyway. Read the Bible. And to be honest, a lot of the deep stuff that you want to talk about, some of us want to talk about, they ain't really giving a rip about that. But you know what? There are some unchurched people around in our community who I think are searching for God. They perhaps just don't know it yet. And if I put their needs first and their preference first, because you know what? I'm going to heaven. And I love singing a lot and I love gifts of the Spirit and I love deep Bible teaching, but I'm going to heaven anyway and I have a responsibility to get some of that stuff myself. But if I put them first, how different would it look? And what would we do? In order to reach those who don't yet know God. Now can I just say to you, okay, I'm being really risky here. Doesn't mean that everything's going to change from next week. All I'm wanting to do at the moment is say, let's start thinking. Let's start praying. Let's start saying that could God be calling us to have a bigger heart for people? And what does that mean? Why don't we pray? Lord, we, oh, you are so great. You are so amazing. Lord, when we look at the Moses story, it's all about the salvation story of how you sent someone to live, ultimately to die, to bring a group of people out of slavery and bondage into freedom, into life, and in doing so to become a nation, your nation on earth. And God, that's exactly a mirror of what you've done when you sent Jesus to bring us, to bring me, us out of slavery into freedom and life to become your nation on earth, the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that at the start of this year, you'd call each and every one of us to the bigger life. We'd have a bigger perspective of you. We'd have a bigger sense of our own purpose and our own place in this great mission. And we'd have a bigger heart for people. Lord, that means we're going to get hurt more means we're going to get disappointed a little bit more. means we're going to get uncomfortable a little bit more. But God, it might mean that more people get to hear and more people get to respond to you and more people get to give their lives to you and more people in our community get to know the God of heaven who sent Jesus, his son, who by his spirit is at work trying to bring all men to you. So God, I pray that in Jesus' name that you would cause us to rise up in these first few weeks of this year and that we give ourselves to you and that by choice we would choose to become bigger, braver and bolder by the power of your spirit. Amen.